0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.
1: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com. What in the world
2: is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end
0: up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
3: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: What is the story? How are you doing there? It's podcast time. How are you, head? I'm great. I am absolutely super. You've got a big head (laughs) in you today. Were you out last
3: night? No, I wasn't. I was in. Sipping a little bit of rosé. A little bit? A little bit. Well, maybe a little bit more.
0: (laughs) Right. Okay. Because you're looking particularly fetching this morning. (laughs) Thank you. Particularly fetching. I hope you're all feeling well and we're all struggling through. You know, John, the first thing that I really want to talk about is a headline in the paper. We're going to talk about peak neoliberalism. This is going to be our topic and we're going to look at the football and all that carry on.
3: Yeah. But... By the way, I, I want you to give me a definition of what neoliberalism is, because it's a phrase that is banded around a lot. Yeah. But if somebody said to me, what is it? I'd actually kind of struggle to define it in a sentence or two.
0: Ah, no. Not a no, sentence. No, no, no. Not there, not a there's sentence. a challenge for you. Go not on. Not a sentence. We'll come back to neoliberalism in two seconds. Yeah. But I look at it. Dun Leary Rathdown, where we live, mm-hmm. apparently... Planning regulators, because this is about the housing crisis, Mm -hmm. right? Planning regulators have told the councillors of Dunleary Rathdown to scale back residential zoning back, right? Saying that the targets of the Dunleary Rathdown new development plan will build almost 7,000 more housing units than needed. Than needed, right? What are they basing that on? Well, you know what? What I find so frustrating is the fact that we are planning. Even if there is planning in Ireland, right? That they're planning based on estimates of housing needs in four, five, six years time, right? Mm-hmm. When in actual fact we should be planning based on housing needs in 50 years time. Yeah. And keep building, keep building. There is a very interesting example of the sewers in London. <laughs> <laughs>
3: One year, give me a year.
0: 1862, oh. 1862, Benjamin Disraeli yes. is the prime minister. And London was called the big stink in mm. the Victorian age because it was filthy it was cesspools, the sewerage system wasn't going. Anyway, a British engineer is commissioned by Disraeli to fix the sewers. Right. And he's a fella called Joseph Bazalgette, right? Yeah. And what he does, I've heard that name before. he does actually. is over a period of 18 years, the chief engineer in London, Basil Gett, he masterminded a network of sewers that were 82 miles long, using 880,000 cubic yards of concrete, 318 million bricks, and they built a sewerage system for a city three times bigger than London was at the time. Right. And there is, that's how you build. That's a
3: serious bit of engineering. But
0: that's how you build. Mm. You say, okay, it's not about houses next year or the year after the year. Basically, can you imagine if Dublin's population went to 2 million Mm. or Corks or Belfast or whatever, and you build appropriately. It's this idea of building much more than you need Mm. in order to have the capacity in the future. Well, having a bit of vision. So you're not coming back. Yeah. And And here we have, here we have in our neck of the woods, the planner saying, oh no, don't rezone even though we've the worst housing crisis ever in this country. Yeah. Don't rezone too many because you'll build too many houses when that's exactly what you want. You want to be building capacity upon capacity upon capacity. And, and this is the local planners in This is the Dublin planners for the the city. Right. Are attacking the Dunleary Rathdown County Councillors who have rolled out a plan for yeah. this part of the world which the Dublin City Planners suggest we'll have 7,000 extra houses. That
3: Can we, can we say officially to the Dublin planners, off. You know, we have been talking about this and analysing the major housing crisis that we face and our younger generations are struggling. They're stressed. They're trying to get a foothold in life find a job and find a place to live. And you guys are coming along with your short-sightedness and saying, no, I reiterate, F- off.
0: Okay, that is John's view. But I mean, John, whether or not that's the right language to use... Perhaps I take, not. I apologise I for I, I that. I take your point. But what it is, is it shows this endemic, endemic, short-term thinking. You know this expression... We're actually living longer, but thinking shorter. The whole world is obsessed with short-term thinking. And if you consider the problem of housing, what is actually the problem is the concerns of people that we cannot hear yet, because they haven't been born, Mm. should be actually dictating policy today. So the question is, how do you input into your policies the concerns of people you cannot yet hear? Mm. And that's always the problem with city planning, is that like our friend in London, the sewers, you're actually building a system for people who aren't even born yet. Yeah. That's how it should be done.
3: And you know what, Mac? You know, last week, you know me and and sport and football, I'm not a big fan, but I was hopping mad. You were. Like everybody else who has any sort of interest in sport, about the whole Super League, and I was delighted. Now oh, I know we're going to talk about this a little bit and you can explain the ins and outs of it a lot more to me. But what gave me great hope was the way the fans reacted. Yeah, the people and just people said power. no. Yeah, the people power. And you know, link that with housing. You know, it's almost like there's there's a housing super league here in, in Ireland.
0: And the thing is stitched up by big developers and bankers Absolutely. and whatever.
3: And as you said before, having a buyer's strike, as it were. Yeah. I'm not sure how that would work exactly. But that's something along those lines is needed, where they just go, no. Just like the way the fans said no to the You Super
0: are, League. you are, do you know what, John? You are the Gary Neville of the housing market. <laughs> Gary Neville. You are the Gary, you're standing up. I am, up, yeah, I I am on a soapbox at the moment. I'm saying, I'm having a, but again, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. The boycott. There is power in collective action. And what we're going to talk about today is collective action. What we're going to talk about today is whether or not the Super League signals the peak of a type of thinking about economic and finance, the end of a big super cycle that may have lasted the last 30 years and the beginning of something else.
3: Okay, to begin with, Mac, Give me that definition of neoliberalism. Tell us what it is in a nutshell.
0: Neoliberalism is the economic status quo that has pertained for the last 30 years. Unfortunate things is, is to use the word liberal. See, I describe myself as a paleoliberal. Right?
3: Like a dinosaur. A,
0: an old-fashioned liberal, right? Yeah, a dinosaur. <laughs> but an old-fashioned liberal. I believe in liberalism. I believe in the liberal economy and the liberal agenda. I believe that, you know, if you're tolerant and open-minded to people then the society should work quite well. Mm. But neoliberalism is a sort of a nasty form of extreme liberalism, which basically says that if the market delivers this solution, then it must be by definition right. And what flows from that then is a sort of a laissez-faire attitude to inequality. That mm-hmm. basically, and you see, you hear this in America, inequality is fair because it's a reflection of your efforts. You know that sort of way? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. But that yeah. takes
0: into no account the fact that, That in actual fact, everything depends on where you start. If you start in the gutter, it's much more difficult to get up than if you start in a big fancy pants house, right? The other thing about neoliberalism is it comes with an economic ideology which says the state is bad. And therefore, what we should do is we should take the state out of as many parts of the economy as possible. And if there is an economic Instrument to use its interest rates and right. the price of money, and that's how we will organize the economy. And that's what we did, right? Neoliberalism always and everywhere will argue that austerity is a good policy because oh, it's obsessed okay. by it's obsessed by balancing the books in the in in the economy. Mm. It's this pathetic Thatcherite view that the economy is like a household, and you should manage it like a household, right? Yeah. Which actually, any macroeconomist with their salt will tell you. Is total nonsense. Mm. And as I've always said before, that economics, rather than being a pure science, has been hijacked by all sorts of people with their own agendas. So neoliberalism has always been identified with the right wing. And the right wing saying that ultimately, the, the way in which the society ends up is something that basically like Adam Smith, you can't really, really change the natural order of things. It's a complete hijack of Smith himself, who actually wrote a book about morals as well as economics. And he was quite a moral philosopher as well. Mm. So neoliberalism is a, an extreme, nasty form of liberalism. Paleoliberalism, liberalism, on the other hand, us older people, <laughs> believes in, I think, a more pure form of.
3: And globalism is linked Globalization
0: to be- is linked to it because globalization yeah. is basically saying if you can source your resources at the cheapest price, then that's a good thing. It's also related to in the area of financial management. To this idea of shareholder value, mm. and shareholder value is a very, very narrow gauge idea of what a company is all about.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it basically
0: says that the company's only got to do is make profit for its shareholders, mm. as opposed to its stakeholders and whatever. And I think we've reached the peak of neoliberalism. But this is what I wanted to get to. With the football, to. yes.
3: So explain to me why we, you think we've reached the and and what does that look like and where are we going? So from here? so
0: so look at the look at what happened in the football. Right, you have unbelievably narrow interests of the owners of the football club. So these incredibly wealthy billionaires get together in a sort of pathetic stitch up mm. and they, they're they driven by uh, J.P. Morgan, the, the bank. Mm. And J.P. Morgan, the bank, says... Listen, guys, we're going to create this separate league. And this separate league is going to generate huge amounts of money into the future because you know what? The stupid fans, they'll go along with it. Yeah. They'll buy the subscription. Yeah. Because they're agents, right? Yeah. So basically, what you have is that the owners of the it's like a Jared Ratner moment. Do you remember Jared Ratner? It was 30 years ago this week. It's he the guy who said is jewelry is crap. Exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. basically Jared
0: that. Ratner got up at a shareholders' meeting and and said, our customers are idiots. Our jewelry is crap, but it won't matter because they're idiots and they'll keep buying it, right? Yeah. And the company imploded, right? It was actually 30 years ago this week, right? So this is a similar sort of thing. Now, what these guys said is they said, what we will do is at zero interest rates, we will get a bank, an investment bank, JP Morgan, to borrow billions and billions and billions, right? And give us the money, right? So give it directly to us, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, yeah. like it's really ridiculous, right? And then what we will do is we will create this super league. And this super league over the next 10 years will create a stream of income to pay back the billions that we've just heisted from JP Morgan. That was the, That's the scam, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And you know what? Not only will we avoid Sky Sports, we we'll create our own platform, yeah. right? So we'll take everything for us, right? Yeah. So this is yeah. like neoliberalism, to the nth degree it's like it's like jihadi neoliberalism right. if, a geo, if the if the if the neoliberals had a jihadi movement it's the isis of neoliberalism yeah. right so
3: it's like as you say sweating the assets but this is more than sweat is, it's like sticking into a sauna
0: this is sticking the assets into a sauna and sticking something up there as yin yang and just saying you know right but the whole point is it's all driven by greed yeah like really yeah, yeah, horrible yeah, yeah. greed yeah. And the thing is that when you're in this bubble, when your ears are stuffed with money, you're tone deaf to everything, right? They didn't realize that the world has changed. Yeah. The world has completely changed. We're going to go on to in the middle, in a minute. But this is why I think this is a, this is a moment, like you, people look back and say, do you remember that neoliberal thing, that, that thing that, and it has lasted since the 1980s. So yeah. Ronald Reagan, driven by the ideology of Milton Friedman. So all economists need a politician to grab their ideas and drive them forward. Mm. Milton Friedman had been talking about monetarism and deregulation and shareholder value and all these ideas in Chicago University. And he was kind of like an unusual person, but he had been made his name in a very, very famous history of the Depression with a woman called Anna Schwartz, which was on how they understood why the Great Depression happened. So he was a very good economist, okay. very yep. good academic, right? Involved himself with Pinochet in 73 Ooh. in Chile as well. Oh, Yeah. If you want to read it, it's all about the called the Chicago Boys. Naomi Klein, the very left-wing writer from Canada, has written quite a lot about this. Anyway, so the neoliberalism is, I think, now completely over, right? And what you're seeing is a whole new revolution in economics. And we're going to talk to a guy called Dario Perkins in a moment about that revolution. And the revolutionary guard is being driven by Stephanie Kelton, who is very much, if Friedman was sponsored by Reagan to usher in a 40-year or a 30-year neoliberal view. Kelton has been sponsored by Biden to usher in the same thing right now. So we're in a, a really big moment. Okay? Right, yeah. But So to go back to the, the football, right? another great moment, 30 years ago, Ceaușescu. Do you remember Nikolai Ceaușescu? I do,
3: I okay. do.
0: And his wife, Elena, who described herself and was called the genius of the Carpadians. <laughs> <laughs> she, was a, she was a chemist who used to apparently... Was she a chemist? Yeah, uh, yeah she was a, no, but even better. She was a chemist who used to get the best chemists in Romania to write papers for her. And then she'd submit them as her own to international chemistry oh, symposiums. Really? And she'd get like an A plus, And she was the genius of the Carpathians. <laughs> the, the Cogger of the, the Carpathians. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so Ceausescu, 22nd of December, 1989. Yeah. We are in Bucharest. Ceausescu is giving... With these interminable speeches. That's the, again, that's the problem with communists. They go on too long. Yeah. Like Fidel, six hour speeches, you get over it, man. Yeah, and right?
3: Putin is a bit partial to that too. Putin actually. likes a speech. Yeah.
0: He likes a speech. He actually gave a very interesting one this week. Anyway, but the commies go on along. And of course, Ceausescu, born as hell, right? Yeah. So he gets up and it's Revolution Square in Bucharest, right? That he has built for his own gratification now
3: the place is stuffed
0: stuffed to the gills yeah right and his securitate guys are basically walking around making sure everybody's singing from the same hymn sheet and it's an amazing moment he gets up to talk and the first about 10 minutes the crowd are cheering and then they turn on him yeah and the guy is dead 24 hours later assassinated right it rippled through the crowd unbelievable yeah. unbelievable right and it's that moment where, if you're in your own bubble, whether that bubble be the investment banking, private equity, billionaire talking to yourself bubble, or the communist apparatchik, Politburo bubble, you don't get what's going on in the world. And um, the football lads were had their Ceausescu moment, yeah. you know. And what's what I find quite interesting is the end of neoliberalism was broadcast. On Sky Sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sky Sports is owned by the king of neoliberalism, Rupert Murdoch. So there's a certain poetry in it. But then again, there was a certain poetry in the end of communism was covered by Pravda. Yeah. And it was actually the end of communism was signaled by Pravda. And Pravda, of course, was the mouthpiece of the the Soviet Union. So sometimes there's lots of ironies and and unusual things in these stories. But to come back to the Well, I wonder
3: did the, the Super League guys have the same face on them as Ceausescu? Remember he looked around. Yeah. He just didn't get it. He didn't understand, what are they saying? And they're all going, "Are you big bollocks, yeah.
0: But you know what what I'd love to, I would love to have access to the WhatsApp group of the Super League, right? (laughs) So you can imagine like Sunday night, it's like, woo, the pictures of (laughs) bottles of wine and champagne and parties and, you know, Man United is typing, woo, happy days. Liverpool is typing. And then like by Tuesday, you know, things are getting a bit weird, like and Spurs is typing, you know. Gary Neville is a twat. Yeah. Don't worry then. And then by, by Wednesday, Man United has left the group. Man United has left. Spurs is now deleting messages. Yeah. So that's the Ceausescu moment is the WhatsApp group. Right? But let's see it in the context of big revolutionary change that I think that what we're going through now is a massive, massive revolution in economics, politics, and it's going to change the world. And it's something that I'm not sure that economists, certainly of my generation, have twigged. Because as Keynes always said, it's a great expression, it's far more difficult to escape the clutches of a bad idea than to invent and embrace a new good idea. So economics is going to be stuck. And it's going to be those who invested all their time in being educated in the last 40 years are going to say, this new world can't exist because in a way it besmirches everything they've done, but it's coming. And what we'll do now is a very interesting paper was written about this by Dario Perkins, who's an English economist. He's half Italian, English economist. So let's talk to Dario, get his view and then come back. Dario, you wrote a fantastic paper about MMT, but you also wrote about great economic supercycles. I want to get to MMT, but I want you to put it in the context of that paper you wrote about these cycles. Explain that to me. Explain that to the listeners, because I, I find it fascinating.
2: Yeah, I mean, so the starting point is that the capitalism is, is kind of unstable. And so we have to build institutions and set policies to try and manage that instability. And over time, the institutions that we choose and the types of policies that we use reflect this kind of big balance of power where, where either labour or capital have been dominant. And so we've been in an era now where uh, the, the capital has totally dominated everything. You know, we, we, the focus has been on keeping inflation low, keeping interest rates low. Uh, we've had uh, a monetary policy dominance, which has inflated asset prices. Uh, and wages and middle incomes have, have got hammered. And so it seems to me that we're, we're reaching a kind of inflection point. And we, we probably should have reached this pit, this point A long time ago you know after the global financial crisis it was pretty clear that the system wasn't working and it needed a reset but it wasn't obvious what could replace the the systems that we had and i think with biden in the us you're starting to see a very different approach to to policy Uh, and it's a it's a generational change you know the way that young economists who are coming through now think about the world is so totally different to what people were thinking 20 years ago and it's basically a rejection of of mainstream economics and you know it could be very profound i don't think we get there you know extremely quickly i think this is this is a a kind of inflection point that that happens over time but this is you know this is fundamentally a, a new regime that we're going into i think
0: now let's explain the new regime because stephanie kelton is an old friend of mine good mate she's been on the show here a good few times about four or five years ago, she said to me, look, I'm really thinking about these different things, David. And and, 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 I, and I think we've got it wrong. And I think the economy works in a different way. And it, this was all new because I mean, like, I, I was, you know, I worked in the city. I was a central banker. I was trained in all the old way, right? Me Stephanie's, too. yeah. So yeah, I know we're kind of, we're, we're kind of like dinosaurs trying to reinvent ourselves. We're a bit like AC Milan. We're like dinosaurs right. trying. <laughs> 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 but let's go back to, because Stephanie's at the vanguard of this new movement. Explain to me what MMT
2: is? So in a, in, a, in a sense, it's it's arguing that we can achieve everything we want to achieve via fiscal policy, that this extreme uh, monetary dominance where we've just completely relied on central banks to set interest rates and, and manage the economy is profoundly wrong. Um, and it's it's basically you know, a rejection of everything we tried for the last 10 years You know, after the global financial crisis Policymakers went back to austerity uh, and they thought that central banks could could you know offset that, that central bank QE and all of that stuff, low interest rates would be enough. And you know, at, at that time, 2010, I was at the UK Treasury. Uh, and there was this very strong belief that you know, we, could, we could go down this austerity route and it would have no damaging effect on the economy, um, that everything would be fine, that that, that monetary policy would be enough. This was, this was the view of the Treasury. And then you had people like Bill Gross, who was you know, the king of government bonds, arguing that UK gilts were sitting on a bed of nitroglycerin and the bond market was about to explode. And at that time, you had UK yields at, at 4%. I mean, we're now... At zero, you know, we, we, during this regime, we've pushed nominal interest rates down to 700-year lows. Uh, and so you know all of these warnings about debt being unsustainable and once debt hit 100% of gdp we'd go into some kind of meltdown and we'd turn into greece and the bond vigilantes would get us you know all of that stuff was profoundly wrong and it had a and it had a you know really serious impact on society and we've seen you know the kind of toxic politics that that has come out of this 10 year period and throughout that 10 years you know people like stephanie kelton just got it right continuously you know they were right about the impact of austerity uh, they were right in predicting the euro crisis they were right in saying that countries like um the us and the uk were nothing like greece you know and that's the that's the very basis of mmt that if you if you're a government that has its own uh, money that it can create money you can't go bankrupt you you can't be a victim yeah. of bomb vigilantes you can't turn into greece and so, everything the mainstream was saying about the dangers of government debt turned out to be profoundly wrong. And so, you've had a 10 year period where MMT's just been right, 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 all the way through it. The, the mainstream has been completely confused. And then you've had this new generation of economists that is coming in saying, well, look, this world that we live in is nothing like the world that the mainstream worries about. And I get this from investors too. I mean, you know, we have a a bunch of clients. um, Some of them are older investors, older clients. You know, they're profoundly worried about MMT. They say, we're going back to the 1970s. You know, this is extremely dangerous regime. And that stuff just seems alien to younger economists who, you know, have lived in a very different world. They've lived in a world where governments have been obsessed with their deficits and been wrong to be obsessed with those deficits, where interest rates have just gone lower and lower and lower, where there's been no inflation and where we've been struggling with really serious problems like inequality and and climate change. And if you're in that austerity world, you don't have the balance sheet to deal with things like climate change. Well, you know, the the good thing about MMT right now uh, is it's saying we do have the balance sheet to deal with these problems. And so you now have Biden coming in 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 the US saying, well, let's just do it. You know, let's deal with these problems. Let's build back better. Not let's build back to where we were before. You know, we can do better than that. We can do better than this last decade of of secular stagnation. Uh, And that's a very profound shift. And we have to hope that that comes to Europe as well. And so, you know, the German elections later this year are, are a very big test of that because you have the Green Party in Germany, where you could end up with a very similar regime shift in Europe.
0: Well, let's, let's, let's just before we go, let's end on, on the European idea, because at the moment, people like Stephanie are saying there's a profound difference between issuers of currencies and users of currencies. So the UK has its own treasury. It prints these, uh, these, these pounds with Picture the Queen on the front of them, and it can do this ad infinitum. But Ireland, France, Spain, Germany, Italy are all users of somebody else's currency in this sense. The Bank of Italy can't just print euros the way it used to print lira. To what extent do you think that the ECB has kind of got itself into a corner that is actually implementing MMT in all but name on the basis that it is buying everything? On the basis that governments are rocking up with their IOUs, and the ECB is saying, "Well, listen, guys, for the time being, that's all cool with us." So, what do you, the idea that maybe the crisis now, the COVID crisis, is reinstating monetary sovereignty for euro countries through the back door?
2: Yeah, in a sense, it is. I mean, you you know what we're not going to get is a euro crisis of the type that we had in 2010. Um, which was
0: By the way that's by the way that's very good news for us because we had that right
2: Yeah but I've listened to your podcast on housing market and I think you've got your own set sort of problems with housing. Oh yeah tell me about and it in the UK as well. Gonna, we're not going to get that kind of um, euro crisis again, because back then, the big question in markets was, where's the backstop for this? You know, if if markets test Italian debt, uh, you, could, you could imagine a situation back then where the market could force Italy out of the euro. Now, when Draghi said, we'll do whatever it takes, he basically said, we're going to backstop this whole system. You know, we're not going to have a market led crisis like that. If the euro were to break down now, it would be because a country chose to leave the euro not because markets forced uh, a country out of the euro. So it's a very different type of beast. And so in that sense, the ECB is the backstop. And so it's it's saying, you know, if it, you know we have this profound problem where we can't get inflation to where we want it to be, we're going to keep interest rates low for a very long time, we're going to keep Buying up government debt if we have to. Uh, And so, in the sense you you do have that backstop from the central bank now, but it's going to be up to governments. You know, the whole point of MMT is that governments have to do more, governments have to spend, and the constraint on them is inflation. And so we have to get to a regime where governments are spending so much that they start to threaten inflation. And actually, right now, the ECB would love that because then the ECB might actually meet its inflation target. You know, we're already in a world of fiscal dominance because it's fiscal policy that will decide whether central banks have any chance of meeting their inflation target over the next few years. And if we go back down the austerity route, there is no chance of central banks being able to do that.
0: Well, and also, if you go back down the austerity route, we're going to get all sorts of bizarre, crazy politics, as should be the case, as should be the case. You know, people have to react to these things. Daria, can I just ask you in conclusion, this great idea, which I, which I really like, that, you know, I've always thought that economics is theology. It's not science. It's, 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 it's a combination of various things, but it, it's, it, it moves with fashion. It moves with all sorts of impulses that are coming up from the street, so to speak. What you think, and I think it's a it's a lovely way of putting it is that we're at a kind of a generational change it's like a move from fake you know it's like a move from heavy metal to punk or it's, you know it's it's basically that the that the the scene has shifted
2: yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't happen immediately it's something that you you look back on and you say, well that was the turning point you know and and the you know there could be mistakes you know the u k government introducing too much austerity over the next few years that's one potential error. Uh, but I think, you know, the path is very clear. I mean, this is only really going in one direction from here. Uh, and, you know, we're going back into a world where it would look a little bit more like the economy we had after the Second World War. And I think MMT takes that to an extreme. And so people are scared of MMT, because they say, well, that, that system that we had after World War II led to you know, rampant power and rampant inflation, and we don't want to go back there. But actually, for now, this just means a much better policy mix, because we're going to have a, a situation where fiscal policy is doing more, and there's less pressure on central banks to try and uh, you know, make up for governments not doing enough. So this is a much better policy mix and it's better for, for you know, social objectives. It's better for things like inequality. You know, central banks can't target inequality. They're just changing the interest rate isn't going to affect things like inequality. But when you accept that fiscal policy can do more and governments can do more, uh, then you can tackle things like inequality. You can tackle things like climate change. Um, you know, we can, I mean, Stephanie Kelton said it in her book, as we can have nice things, which is which is kind of what I'm getting at here. Well,
0: which is actually, should be, it should be the objective of economics, is to have nice things.
2: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, for the last 30 years, we've been told that we can't have nice things. And if we are going to have nice things, they have to be provided by this, this kind of market system, which is <laughs> creating its own nice things, but not necessarily the nice things that the rest of society want.
0: And it's also creating its own nice things for a very small amount of people. They get the nice things, but the average guy doesn't. <laughs> listen, Dario, that's great. I know it's, I know it's your weekend. Just count your blessings that you're living in the UK and you're out, unlike us who are still locked up.
2: So I'm going down to Hastings. So you know what I really need is a Vespa. For, you
0: know. Oh well, listen. There's one outside. There's one. Look, if you're if you're half Italian, you've got to be born with a Vespa. It's raining. <laughs> <laughs> listen, Dario, I leave you go. Take care, man.
3: So what Dario is saying there, Mike, is that we're we're going down a new route yeah. in economics. What was that point of change?
0: Was it Biden? Was it happening before Biden? You yeah, know- that's a, I mean, it's like it's like all these changes are in the ether and they are bubbling up from the bottom. And yes, you have certain moments where you can identify well, that's the moment of change to quote the great Vladimir Lenin who said there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen, yeah. right? And what he meant by that is that social historical movements can be regarded as sort of almost remote until they happen and then suddenly the timetable accelerates. Yeah, And in the economics world, what is very clear is that the MMT view, this modern monetary theory, which basically says... Old economics takes the view that we tax first and then we spend, right? This new economics is going to take the view that we spend first and then we tax. So the government creates Mm. the money by printing it, puts it into the economy, that goes around the economy, generating tax surpluses, generating taxes, and the taxes paid after we spend, right? Now, that is a huge, huge move away from traditional economics, right? Traditional economics has always said that money is scarce, that the state cannot spend, that there is such a thing called taxpayer's money. Yeah. The MMT are saying there is no such thing as taxpayer's money, right? This is a radical, radical change. It's radical until you begin to think about it, and it's not that radical at all. I mean, you think about in the past Mm -hmm. that... It was seen as an act of faith to put leeches on people yes, who are, yeah. were sick. I told you about George Washington. Yeah, yeah, we spoke about this He was this leeched before. to death, the yeah. poor bollocks, right? Yeah. He had a sore throat. <laughs> and they divested him of all his blood and he died. <laughs> of him. He hadn't enough blood, right? The most important man in American history yeah. died because of some quackery, right? <laughs> Nonsense, all right? So sometimes, you know, there is a moment like, did we believe that shit? And the worst thing for me is I'm part of the profession that propounded that stuff. And yeah. came but you know, so so there is that moment, and that's the first thing. So the second thing is that fiscal policy, the governments can do much more than you think. Mm. Now the problem, the reason this goes against the grain is because we're talking about neoliberalism was so heavily, heavily ingrained in people's thinking up until now. Yeah. I mean, there, there was the great Ronald Reagan. Uh, the great Ronald Reagan slogan was the worst knock on the door you can ever get is the guy who says, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, what the MMTers are saying, no, no, we have climate change. We have inequality. These are much bigger issues than the rate of interest or the debt-GDP ratio or the national debt. So we can deal with all those things, but we have huge problems to solve.
3: This is a new way of thinking. America... The Republican Party in particular and the right were always about small government. Yeah. So MMT needs more involved government. So is this going to lead then to the end of of the right?
0: Oh, no, because the right will recalibrate itself. It gives the right a bigger target now. In a way, what they've done by embracing MMT in America, they won't say it because they think it's too radical. Yeah. But they've done it in all but name, is they've said, we figured out that we were being captured by a bad idea for a long, long time. Now, rather than say it was a bad idea, which again gets people's backs up, particularly yeah. people who have vested so much time and effort, you know, all the economics professions who've invested so much time and effort into into, into the orthodoxy, yeah. there's no point having a fight with them, right? Just bring them along with you. So they're saying, look, it may well be called MMT. You don't have to subscribe to it. And you can think that in extremists. The state can't just keep printing money, which it can't, right? Right. Because at some stage it will be inflationary. But why don't you just step back now and allow the process develop? And if we get inflation down the road, well, then we'll stop, right? So now, which is in effect giving the job that used to be the central banker's job to the government. Now, people on the right will say the government always has a vested interest in giving out more goodies because every four years the politicians need to get elected. Mm, so mm. you have to deal with the political economy of MMT. Yeah. And again, we're only at the very, very beginnings of it. But what is fascinating for me is the generational shift in economics. And I think any idea or any way of looking at sociology and economics and politics that isn't dynamic, that is static, is wrong. Status is the worst thing you can have. So I I think that the dynamism coming up from the bottom now on the part of economists, on the part of, you know, political people, on the part of generations is saying, you know, we're going to change. Now, the generation thing is fascinating because generations, as Neil Howe would say.
3: I was going to bring up Neil Howe, actually, because this is, he talks about generational changes and we're on this big cycle. And he did say that we are coming to the end of that super cycle,
0: and we're into a new super cycle. Yes, and this this MMT looks like it is the intellectual basis of a new super cycle. Yeah, and Biden looks to me, as I said, a bit like Reagan in the sense that he's going for this. He's a convert, but what you know, what generations are they are a collection of memories. That affect us. The reason that, you know, for example, in Northern Ireland, you know, there's a civil rights generation in Northern Ireland. You know exactly Mm. what that means. There are a generation of nationalists who came of age during civil rights, and a generation of unionists who came of age civil rights, and that changed their worldview, and they brought that with them. So all generations have a collective, or some collective connective tissue that binds them together. Yeah. And in the United States it was the Second World War, or the Boomers, or what have you, right? And therefore you see the world differently because the connective tissue that binds you together is different. And what the MMTers are saying is that a new generation, which is emerging in a perennial housing crisis, think about Mm
3: it,
0: worried about climate change, worried about inequality, has got a different set of anxieties than a generation that came of age worrying about inflation. Yeah. So this new generation comes of age worrying about deflation, not inflation. The old generation was the generation of fossil fuels. These are the generation of the seventies. You yeah. so say, "I yeah, just burn it, yeah. just burn it." You know, <laughs> dig a hole, get the oil out. So you've got. The fossil fuel generation versus the climate change generation. The old generation, the 70s, was one of upward social mobility. Yeah. This is a generation of downward social mobility. So it's very, very clear that the millennials are going to see the world differently because their worldview is different. So their generation connective tissue is different. And what all generational change needs is it needs an ideology. It needs somebody to say, here is the roadmap. Here is the underlying economic political theory that we can offer you that will answer some of your concerns and propel you forward. And that's what MMT is all about. Now it's gonna lead to a monumental scrap in economics, right? There'll be this could be good. There'll be a Bitch fight in economics. Oh, it'll be shocking, right? Really will, right? And hell hath no fury like an academic economist spurned, right? They're going to go mental for this stuff, right? And it's like, I'm going to write an even cleverer paper in an obscure journal to attack your thing. But the world will go on. Yeah, The world will go on. And I think it's really exciting. I think it's extremely exciting because I think we're at a tipping point where Every generation says, look, our world experience is different to your world experience. We're coming into power now and we're going to execute the change. But all change needs an ideology. All changes needs a philosophy. All change needs a, if you will, a Torah or a Bible to say, this is our article of faith. And it seems to me that MMT could well be that article of faith.